right, I'm gonna roll. to the very first episode of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler. Uh, I'm a professor at, in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Auk Bay in Juneau, Alaska. And I'm joined by my co-host, Lee Smith. She's operating a little bit further up north in Fairbanks, up there in the Arctic. How is it up there in the Arctic this morning, Lee? Hey, good morning, Christian. Fairbanks is great. Thanks for asking. Uh, above zero, gaining daylight. But how's it down there in the panhandle? I hear it's like 40 above. Yeah, it's like 40 degrees. It's like we're not even in Alaska. I guess you can kind of see behind me. Typical view here. Nice and gray and uh, rainy. Just warm enough to be raining. Um, hopefully we get some more snow before the, the season is over. But I'm also excited for that Juno spring sunshine and some you know, some berries and and bears. Um, all right, well, we got we got a great show planned for you this morning, and I'm very excited to have my good friend and brother L.A. Giles, who is a social worker operating uh, in a few different roles out of the beautiful island of Maui, Hawaii. But before we get uh, to that conversation, that dialogue, um, with this being our first episode and all, there's a few things we want to go over real quick. Yeah, so this project, the Critical Social Worker Podcast, is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we want to make it clear that the opinions expressed on the podcast, be it by the hosts, guests, listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the values of the Social Work Department, the College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas uh, expressed belong to the speaker alone. Thank you very much, Lee. Um, and to add to that, uh, I think we should talk a little bit about the organization, the organization of this project and how it all goes down. Um, I came up with this idea of a podcast as a way to create opportunities for storytelling and critical dialogue in an effort to unfold some of the more obscure facets of social work and the lofty goal of changing ourselves and through ourselves changing the world. However, the podcast is not necessarily about me. And while I'll host and guide many of the episodes, Lee will be here with me at the very least through the rest of the semester and maybe beyond. Um, Lee is a practicum student. So to give you a little background for those of you that aren't familiar with social work, in order to earn a bachelor's degree in social work or a BSW as it's commonly known, seniors must complete a practicum internship. So basically they must go out into the field and practice the art of social work with some supervision. Well, in this case, we created a unique opportunity for one of our seniors to join us on this podcast for their practicum requirement. And thus, we are very thankful and happy to have Lee working on the project with us. Um, like I said, she's here at least until May, but hopefully we get her beyond that, depending on circumstances. So beyond all that, uh, we hope to create a small organizational structure that will not only include the practicum students, but also student volunteers and interns as well, and um, emphasize contributions from students in our program. And it would be folly of us to continue without shouting out the University of Alaska Social Work 
department, which very much is well deserving of that. They're among the top, I should say we are among the top of the, uh, the top ranked programs for asynchronous BSW programs. And while the program doesn't have, um, excuse me, and while the program does have a very important emphasis on Alaska and the peoples in within Alaska, you can um, take, you can uh, work on this program from anywhere in the world, really. Um, without the burden of out-of-state tuition. There's also special opportunities for those living in rural Alaska. So if you want more information about how to apply or to register for the UAF Social, Pro Social Work Program, um, you can visit uaf.edu slash SOCwork. So that's uaf.edu slash SOCWORK. Uh, but we're getting a little bit too far ahead of ourselves. So Lee, would you mind sharing our mission statement? Yes, of course. Got to have a mission statement. So the Critical Social Worker podcast is dedicated to educating and promoting critical dialogue within the social work profession. Our aim is to produce a safe and inclusive platform for diverse voices to share their stories and ideas, fostering empathy and understanding among our listeners. Through storytelling, we aim to promote the values of social work and encourage a sense of community among our audience. Our hope is that these dialogues and stories will produce a critical consciousness, a heightened awareness of ourselves, the world, and the power structures that shape it. So in essence, we have the lofty goals of changing ourselves and the world. Yeah, and you'll hear us say that a lot, and those are lofty goals indeed. Changing the world is a mighty task, but if you think about it, changing ourselves might even be a mightier task. And yet by participating in critical dialogue and storytelling, and storytelling with one another, we open up possibilities for transformative change. And the idea is that it will move away from, you know, this kind of thing where somebody comes on and they tell their story and we have our own story. Instead of your story and my story instead merges into one story, which is our story. Right on. And with that, I think it's go time, Christian. Let's get this party started. Right on. Welcome to the first official episode of the Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. We're going to jump right into it. I would like to introduce our very special guest to you. Now, I could go on and on about all of LA's titles, his many credentials, and his many accomplishments. But honestly, this really isn't that type of podcast, and I'd rather introduce him with a story, if that's all right. And so um, I've known LA for a while now, but there's no spectacle in our story together or anything that exciting. No special crazy stories on the beach or anything like that. Um, so no spectacle. But I thought I could talk a bit about just when and how our two stories merged and became intertwined into one. In the summer of 2015, I had just left. Actually, I had just graduated with my BSW from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And um, I had moved to Hawaii to pursue a master's degree at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in the social work program. And not only was I beginning a graduate program, I was also beginning a relationship with who would, be, who would become uh, my long-term partner and wife, Alicia, and we eventually added three kids along the way. But back then in 2015, I was still pretty young, 
a little bit younger. Uh, so I had some immaturity going on, but I had been around a little, a, lo- a little bit long enough to start to gain little bits of wisdom. Uh, I was still figuring things out. And to be honest, grad school was the least of my problems. I was still trying to figure out life. Um, you know, I, up until that point, I had a life that, you know, if any of you ever heard that song, Bob Seger, Against the Wind, that's how my life was. I was always running against the wind. Um, but I moved to Hawaii with barely any money in my pocket and barely a plan on how I was going to survive or pay for school for that matter. But when I went, I was very clear and deliberate with the universe. I put what I wanted out there and what I needed. We can't hear you. Yeah. You hear me now? All right. Now, yeah, we lost you there. For I don't know where I cut out. But I was saying I moved to Hawaii, barely any money in my pocket. Was clear with the universe on, right. on uh, what I wanted and what I needed. And I asked. Can't hear you. Again. Hello? Still cutting out? Can hear you now. Oh, you're back. I'll try to let me know if it goes out again. Um, anyways, I met LA and Alicia, my wife, um, and we became friends. I asked the universe for help. It delivered, um, brought me friendship, companionship. Alicia and LA were among the first people I met when I was in Hawaii. At, uh, you know, at first, LA and I, we clung to each other in the classroom. We were sharing ideas, pushing each other forward. And eventually we graduated together. And I remember this one time L.A. chastised me because we had this graduation event and I, he felt that I wasn't dressed up to the occasion. And so, you know, he chastised me like I was his little brother. Um, but then I also remember L.A. was there when I proposed to Alicia, my future wife. We were at the Side Street Inn um, and he even recorded the proposal uh, on the phone for my mother-in-law. So he's been there for me for a lot of important events. And after that, I left Hawaii for a few years, but our authentic friendship endured. And when I came back to Hawaii with a growing family and children, LA's authentic love and friendship extended to my children, to our children, and we grew even closer. And now that my family's moved away from the islands again, yet our friendship continues to grow stronger. And uh, based upon my experience, you know, I believe that this is a testament to LA's integrity and the value that he places on authentic relationship. He's warm, he's caring, If he says something, you have no doubt that he means it. He's thoughtful. He's full of empathy. He's almost always has a smile on his face. Um, He's a good man and an outstanding human being. Living life with such joy and authenticity could be a revolutionary act in today's world. You know, given that I know that L.A. has these qualities, I'm fully confident that he's an excellent social worker and a gift to those that have had the opportunity to work with him and continue to do so. So... How are you today, LA, my brother? How's it going? Wow. Well, hey, Christian, aloha from the lovely island of uh, Maui. Very nice to meet you, Lee. Me as well. And uh, I'm doing great, man. Great. 
Oh, yeah, we're doing great here in Hawaii. I'm so excited for you, brother, and this new uh, opportunity. And I love the title, The Critical Social Worker. And, you know, storytelling is a very effective means for healing and bringing people together. So I'm excited for you guys and what you got going on over there. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. And, you know, one of the the, the way that I know that L.A. Tell is a good storyteller is that uh, during the first semester as an adjunct professor, I invited L.A. to come and speak to my class, you know, trying to find different ways to do things. And he gave such a compelling story that it provoked me to answer him to come back here. Um, but before we get to that story, I thought we could start kind of towards the end and then we can circle back to that, you know, real provocative story that you have. Um, so I was just wondering if you could tell us about your life in social work to start out. Uh, because you're a non-traditional so social worker. You didn't always want to do that or jump into it early. And so um, just tell us about that story. What made you want to be a social worker later in life? Well, you know, most of the things that I've done in my life have been very serendipitous. You know, I didn't really give it much thought. I kind of like fell into things. But uh, my social work career uh, didn't happen that way. Uh, social work is my second career. I, uh, right out of high school, I got into computer industry very early in 1979, before there were smartphones in our pocket, before everyone could afford a laptop, and before there was the internet. I got involved when the government was paying uh, kids from low-income areas. Uh, they were... Uh, paying us to go to school to learn computer operations because the business industry didn't have uh, enough employees to get it off the ground. So I enjoyed a career in uh, computer operations from thir uh, for 30 years, from the time I was 19 to 49. And in 2008, if you remember the 2008 financial crisis happened. Millions of people lost their job. Millions of people lost their home. My company laid off 50,000 people, and I received a call three months before my 30th service anniversary telling me that they terminated me. So that threw me into a deep crisis, as you uh, might imagine. I was 49 years old, and for the first time in my life, I was without income. I was without health insurance. I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and it felt like I was 19 years old all over again coming out of high school. Uh, with that, you know, uh, I had some very personal struggles myself. I had just got divorced two years earlier. My wife had walked out on me. I was struggling a little bit with uh, drinking a little bit too much and too heavy to make a effective uh, decision. And my daughter was getting ready to graduate out of college in six months. So I put the bottle down and I stopped drinking and I moved to Maui. That's when I moved to Maui. The reason I moved to Maui is because I had visited here in 2003. And as soon as I got off the airport, something hit me at the depths of my spirit. And I heard an inner voice uh, that, wow, this is where my life was going to change. And so um, in 2009, when that critical uh, situation happened, I, I moved to Maui. And uh, I did a lot of thoughtful introspection and reflection, you know. And one of the questions I asked myself was, how in the hell did I get here? A black man from the ghetto of Chicago, uh, born into a very um, 
abusive, alcoholic, drug addicted home in the 60s on the south side of Chicago. And I asked myself a question, how does one get from there to here? You know, 49 years old, living on the island of Maui and having done really well in my life. And for the first time in 35 years, I, I reflected on my childhood in my life. And first thing came to my mind was my grandmother. She was the light at the end of a tunnel of a very tumultuous and uh, abusive home life. She always made sure we had food to eat, a warm bed to sleep in. She took us on vacations and uh, I had never, I hadn't thought about her in a long time. Then my mind went through my social arts teacher, my senior social arts teacher, who was the one who directed me into the computer industry. And uh, at that time, my grandmother died when I was 27. I hadn't spoke to that senior social arts teacher since I graduated from high school. But at that time, I realized that all of the things I had accomplished in my life, I didn't do it because of my intelligence or because I was so smart. It was these key people who had stepped in my life at critical moments and had redirected me. So at that moment, I gave them all of the credit and glory. And going to college was something I never uh, had a chance to do because I had immediately got into the computer industry at 19. And so here I am, I'm like, my, I was going to my daughter's graduation, and when I saw her walk across the stage and pick up her diploma, I said to myself, that is something that I never got a chance to enjoy or experience in my life. And I always wanted to, but I had a job making great money. I was married, raising a child, so I never had needed to go back to college. But at that time, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And when my daughter walked across that stage, you know, I said, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to, uh, to college. And it was in that moment that I had to decide what I wanted to go back to college for. And because I had come from that alcoholic home and uh, had struggled with some substance use disorders myself earlier in my life, uh, the thought came to me, well, I'll go back to be a substance abuse counselor. And that made sense to me. And so that's what I did. I went back to school to become a substance abuse counselor, uh, got an associate's of science degree in human services with a specialization in substance abuse, worked at a residential treatment center here on Maui for a year and then realized that I didn't like doing that work. <laughs> and uh, so it, it wasn't conducive to what my soul wanted at the time. And, I went to my teacher and I said, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to enjoy this. I can't do this type of work five days a week, eight hours a day. It's too heartbreaking. I want to be a teacher. And she says, well, if you want to be a teacher, you need to go and get your master's degree. And so that's when I transferred over to uh, the University of Hawaii, Manoa, with the intention on getting my master's degree in social work. And so that's how I end up going over there and doing that. Now, at that time, I still had no idea how that was going to transmute into, you know, work on the ground. But I was just basically preparing myself for what was to come. And that's uh, when you and I met. I think we lost your sound, L.A. Uh, I, 
yeah, I, I, that's when you and I met. So I, I stopped there to hand it back to you. So uh, I don't think you lost me. I had just stopped talking. Okay. Did you guys? No, we got you back. You we we just me? lost those last few seconds when you turned it back to me. We couldn't hear what you said. But um, so like, take us to okay. Um, I because re- because I remember you still dabbled in substance abuse, right? Didn't you do your practicum where you worked at Hinamalka right after you graduated? Yeah. Yeah, well, I did. Um, uh, when I was going for my associate's degree, I did a practicum at the Aloha House over on Maui. But then when I was over on uh, Oahu, where I met you, I did my practicum uh uh, Hawaii Friends of Restorative Justice. That was in my graduate degree. And doing, when going for my undergrad, my practicum was a Family Promise of Hawaii, where we housed homeless families and uh, we helped them find work. We taught them how to budget their income. They had to save 90% of their income, learn how to budget it, and we helped transition them into permanent housing. So I did that for the first two years over there. And then in my graduate program, I worked at the women's prison uh, where we were teaching solution-focused therapy for uh, the people that were in prison and that was getting ready to be released back into society. And we were looking to cut the recidivism rates by 50 to 80%. And so uh, that's when my practicums were done. Uh, when we were in school. It was after I graduated, uh, not having any idea which direction I wanted to take those credentials is when I took a job at Hina Malka, the largest substance abuse treatment center, residential treatment center over on Oahu, because I was in fear. I had graduated, I had student loans getting ready to be paid, and I didn't know what to do. So I accepted a job in substance abuse again, and I worked there two weeks and I quit. (laughs) <laughs> so i have because, i got two because i was 100 go ahead i said i have two follow-up questions for you on there the first would be i'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about your practicum experience and was it meaningful for you was it helpful for you especially you know with somebody with a lot of life experience and work experience it's unique to have to to go and volunteer like that so i'm curious about that and then um the second part of the question would be what exactly, what were the parts of, of Hina Malka that made you, you know, because you realized instantly that you didn't want to do it. So I'm just curious about if you could, if you could touch on that for just a little bit. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, the, you know, the, my practical experience was invaluable to me. You know, uh, when I, like I said, and, and what, like you mentioned, you, you have to have the practicums to get some experience in the work that you're planning on doing or that you think you want to do. So that placed me in there and that gave me firsthand experience under the tutelage of people who had been doing the work a lot of time, exposed me to the areas that I thought I wanted to work in. And it did exactly what the practicum is supposed to do. There's a, it's supposed to help you understand, is this what, what my passion is? Am I going to be able to succeed and learn and grow in this? And um, man, because this work that we do is so critical. We're working with people. 
And if you're not passionate about what you're doing and love what you're doing and understand that the people that you're helping are in, in dire need and crisis situations, being placed in situations like this, you can cause far more harm than the help you got into it to, uh, to do. And so that's one of the creeds of social work It's cause no harm. And so for me, uh, it was working in the agencies, the nonprofit agencies, I found that there was conflict in, you know, the money that they needed to make and the service they were providing to uh, the people who were coming out for services. And also, uh, the laws were changing around uh, putting people in jail for addiction. So at that time, a lot of people were being released from the prisons uh, under the auspices of going to get treatment. So a lot of the treatment centers were being filled up with people who were not there necessarily to get sober or to get well, but they were doing it just so that they didn't have to stay in jail. And so with that, uh, that created an environment uh, a lot of chaos, uh, a lot of the information that you're trying to share wasn't being received. And then on top of that, the paperwork was uh, really, really burdensome to me. And that was one thing that, uh, that was one part of the job that I never got used to and I didn't like all of the paperwork that needed to be filled out. I was spending two, three hours, four hours a day just completing paperwork. And, and that just wasn't for me. And so that was what helped me decide uh, that I probably needed to prepare myself for a much wider range of social work. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what that was when I decided I didn't want to do that. And so then, again, out of fear after graduation, when I went back into the residential treatment center, a separate one at this time, it was really just confirmed. Uh, the first time it was doing my uh, sophomore year in college, and that practicum experience, you know, you know, gave me a little hint. Oh, this might not be for me. But then the second time I went after I had graduated. At a very short period of time, I realized that this was not the work that I was going to be able to do. So I needed to find a different path. And uh, just like you, I had to open myself up to the universe to see where was the best place for me to be placed to utilize my uh, experience. And the truth of the matter is, when we graduated, I had no idea what that was going to be. Um, I just wanted to make a comment real quick. I'm sorry if you mentioned it. My sound is a little choppy on my end, but you mentioned two different substance use tr treatment facility positions that you had left. Do you think part of leaving was, you know, partly the heartache, but like, did you see something like of yourself in those people that maybe you weren't ready to kind of uh, confront or, um, you know, be around? Excellent question. No, no. Um, the people that came to these agencies for services 
where I've never been more comfortable around people like that. I grew up in a, in a household that the same people. Uh, so it wasn't the people. It was, I guess, but it was, again, like I said, it was their inability to be ready for change and to do the work, the hard work that is required to escape uh, substance use disorders. That, that, that's disheartening. Uh, and then again, so on top of that, uh, coming up with my own percentages of 90% of the people that were coming in were coming in out being forced there by a judge, uh, threats from a wife, a job sending them there. I believe a lot of them entered far before they were really willing and ready to do what it took to sober up. So that was disheartening, having to deal with that. And then again, like I say, the paperwork that was required by the agency, the nonprofit agency, that's what really drove me out. Well, LA, I want to pivot over to what you're doing now. So you got two things going on, right? You're, you're operating out of a private practice and working for the, for the educational system. Yep. Yeah. So here we go. Right. Um, we're right out of school, uh, two months after graduating me walking away from a job. I just started, um, uh, um, two weeks earlier, I'm over on Oahu and the same thoughts hit me that hit me when I was 19 years old. And when I got laid off my job, I'm like, all right, I got these credentials. I got this experience that I have picked up from my practicums, which was invaluable. The work that I did in my practicums was so good. I really didn't enjoy the practicum experience in the substance abuse area, but in that area where it was housing homeless families, helping them save their money, uh, transitioning them into uh, permanent housing. That was very, very rewarding seeing those people's lives change. Working in the women's prison, I have never been more educated and exposed uh, to so much education is working in that environment. That was another invaluable experience that I still utilize today. So here I am, it's July of 2016, and I have no idea what I wanted to do with all of my college education. So I went right back to what I said, 2003. Well, if I don't know what I'm doing and what I'm gonna go, I might as well move to the place where I've always wanted to be, and that was Maui. So I moved back home. I moved back to Maui because I love it here. And it's like, if I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, <laughs> I might as well be where, you know, it's a beautiful day, even when it's a bad day. So I got here and I just called a friend who uh, was a social worker who had been in the, the business of social work for several years. And I just let him know that. Hey, I moved back home. I'm looking for work. If you know anybody that, you know, can utilize my credentials, let me know. And he, and he says, hey, you know, 
the Department of Education, Lahaina Luna High School is looking for a behavioral mental health specialist. I can hook you up with my supervisor if you like. I said, please do. He gave her my number. She called me the very next day. We set up an interview. I went to see her. We talked for around a half an hour and she hired me on the spot. That was uh, August 2016. And I've been working there ever since. And I tell you, you know, I've never been more rewarded and satisfied in the work that I did, the 30 years of computer work, which allowed me to make a lot of money, to send my daughter to college, to travel the world, to learn computers, to bring in the internet, laptops, cell phones, all of this social media stuff. I helped bring this in. So I was on the cutting edge of technology when all of this happened, but I never really appreciated it. I definitely never got any joy out of it. It was not rewarding to me, but it did provide me a lovely lifestyle. Uh, but now the work that I do, contributing to the health, safety, and well-being of not only the Maui community, but the world, is, uh, you know, I, I can't find the word. And so, again, not once during my education, preparation, going to school, did I ever think about working with adolescents in a high school. My mind was totally focused on addiction because of my family background. But after preparing myself and going to school and taking the lessons and just opening myself up to the universe, it placed me right where I belong. And I think it's fascinating that I'm working with the population, the age group, where all of my most important uh, surrogates, people who changed my life, my grandmother, my senior social arts teacher. These uh, individuals changed my life when I was an adolescent. And now I find myself working with that same population. And I'm getting the message saying that my sound has been lost. Is that true? No, we can hear you. But that was that was 24 minutes ago. All right. So yeah. So I I've been placed in a position that. It wasn't, it wasn't designed by me. The only thing I did was prepare myself to be of maximum service to the universe. I've been placed in a position now where I am so rewarded for the, the people that I work with and the work that I do. And uh, I'm, I'm just totally fascinated that I couldn't come up with it myself. But, you know, the, the Maui community blessed and I'm blessed and I've never been so rewarded for being able to give back and share my experience uh, with this community. Yeah, I think LA, a couple of, I have a couple of thoughts of what your experience here is a testament to. And one is, you know, when things aren't working out and you have to close the door, sometimes it's closed for us. We could be fired or laid off like you were at another time. But when like, it's like when Bob Marley said, why do you look so sad and forsaken? Don't you know when one door closed, many more is open? And you had to put yourself out there to the universe, and that yeah. took you to the right door. But the other thing I wanted to point out was, is that I think I'm so glad that we had you on here for the first guest because you're such a great example of a social worker who's happy, takes pride in what they're doing, and finds joy in what they're doing. Because there's, uh, I hate to say it, but there's too many cases where, you know, social workers are burnt out, and despite loving 
you know, maybe starting off loving what they do, they've got too much paperwork or they've even the things that Lee talked about, you know, maybe they've got too much transference going on and it's bringing them down. Um, you're just a testament to somebody who's doing a good job yeah. at social work. You take joy in it. And I, again, I said this earlier, but you know, I'm thankful that you're there for the people um, that they have you. Um, and I'm sure that they're grateful as well. Um, what is, what is it that makes you, what, what brings you joy? You mentioned that it brings you joy and you've never been happier in a, in a position. What is it about your position that does that for you now? Well, that's a very interesting and fascinating question. You know, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's uh, a result of being born in a, a family dynamic where my mom, if she was drunk one day, she was drunk every day. Uh, having a father who I love dearly, but I don't remember meeting him until I was 14 years old. And the most vivid memory that I have of him is drinking alcohol with him at 18 at his favorite bar. Uh, but at the same time, I lived in a crazy, terribly dysfunctional family. You un understand what I mean? But at the same time, that grandmother, who I refer to, she was rich financially. She owned apartment buildings all around the city of Chicago. So I had the best and the worst of two worlds. It was crazy. It was traumatic. It was dysfunctional. It was abusive. Not to me, the harm was done to my mother, but as a child growing up, seeing that, it affected me deeply. But then, at, at the, on the same hand, I had this beautiful grandmother who loved me, who would take us up to Dewajak, Michigan for summer vacations and do orchards, and I had uncles who taught me how to fish. So on one hand, things were great. On the other hand, like a Chicago thunderstorm, things can go sideways really quick. Then when I left the house and got into the computer industry, I had work where I was making over six figures. I always lived in the nicest neighborhoods. I always lived in the uh, best homes. Uh, I made a lot of money. I traveled the world. I've had beautiful people that loved me and cared for me. But yet, in spite of all of these material things that our culture says brings us success and happiness, I really didn't experience any of that. I found myself being a drunk, living in a brand new house built from the ground up on the island of Oahu on a private resort, and everything was great. I had a lot of money in the bank. I had two cars. I was surrounded by people, but yet the hole in my heart from those unresolved traumas of childhood, none of that Fill those holes. The money didn't fill the hole. The house didn't fill the hole. Living on Hawaii didn't fill the hole. This wife, that wife, this girlfriend, nothing filled the hole. And so when I finally um, started doing my inner work and healing that needed to be done and got into the social work area, one thing that I did study in my graduate program was what you referred to, Christian, about that vicarious trauma and how many social workers end up being more traumatized and harmed than the people they get into the field to help. I was very much interested in that. And if I remember back in 2016 when I was doing that study, it was like 40% of people that get into social work, they leave the, the field prematurely 
and they leave more harm than the people they got into it to help. I was very interested in that. It's like, I'm leaving a job where I'm making six figures and I'm getting ready to go into an industry that's not going to bring me that much money at all. And I could leave that one more traumatized than I got into it to help. So my self-care regiments was very, very important to me of how I was going to navigate that and the transference and the projections and all of that. So I think what I've done is I've done a very, very hard job of making sure that my self-care regimens are in place. I pay a lot of attention to those people who have post-traumatic growth and those who suffer from compassion fatigue and burnout. And I've learned from all of those people, especially those are professors. I talk to them about, you know, most professors, not talking about you, Christian, but the ones that I've met at the University of Hawaii, they end up in those roles because they stayed in the field way too long, didn't have good self-care regimens, and traumatized and left. And so I believe just by being open and uh, being very aware of the unintended consequences of this work. At you know, one other thing that was pro that I'll never forget, it was doing our orientation of getting into this work. And one of my professors, he said this at the orientation. You know, he was asking everybody why they want to get into social work. And he says, there are, I believe there's three types of people that get into social work. And he said, the first type of person that gets into social work and does this is the person who has been harmed and damaged and traumatized during their formative years. And he says, they get in here searching for answers, trying to find the answers to their traumas and, and, and things like that, but they haven't done the work, they haven't recovered, they haven't gotten the therapy that they need, and so they get into this trying to find those answers, and he goes, I'm really afraid of those people. He said the second type of person that get into social work are people who haven't experienced any of those traumas. They've been given everything that they needed in life. They've been uh, have great starts, uh, relatively healthy, stable homes, and a lot of them get into it out of guilt because they want to help and they see other people suffering and that's not their experience. And so they want to contribute and be helpful, but they don't have the experience or the necessary um, tools that they really need to be effective. He said, and they cause a lot of harm and I'm really afraid of those people. And he said, now the third type of person that gets into social work is the person who's been harmed They, they, instead of running from their pain, they ran into it. And they've done the deep reflection, introspections that are necessary. And some of their heal, some of their wounds might not ever heal, but they've gotten to the place where it no longer needs to govern their lives. They're not a slave to it. He says, they help a lot of people. And uh, I'll never forget him sharing that with me. So I've always carried that with me over the course of my education. I've taken my life history of growing up in a terribly dysfunctional home. I went through, I suffered from survivor's guilt all throughout my 20s, 
how I made it and my brothers and sisters didn't. And then the reflection on those individuals, my grandmother, that social arts teacher, the boss who should have fired me so many times, but gave me second and third chances. All of that accumulated knowledge of an experience, I believe, has helped me become the social worker that I am today. I didn't push into a field and just accept the job that I know I wasn't going to be passionate about, that I knew I wasn't going to give 100% just to make the money or to pay off the bill. I trusted that, that in the universe that something for me was going to come up, and it landed me right where I needed to be at a, at a public school with over 1,100 adolescents. And that is the age that I was put on this earth to serve. I know it in the bottom of my heart. <laughs> and uh, I think that's it. You know, once I go there and I do my work and, uh, and I also get a great opportunity to counsel the administrators and the staff also. So I, I believe that's it. You know, I'm not in it for the money. I had the money and the whole You know, it's, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I am the best place in my life that I've ever been, and I'm 62 years old. I can't hear you. There's a... Um, Back to you. Yeah, Chris. there's a... What you just said it reminded me of something. There's a there's an um, a Yupik elder uh, named... Grandmother Rita Pitka Blumenstein, and she passed away recently. Um, so rest in love, Grandmother Rita. But you know she, what you just said? She would give she would give the advice. I've heard her say this many times. She'd say, "People often have a hole, H O L E, in their heart, and you've got to fill it to make yourself whole." H W H O L E. So you basically fill the hole to be to become whole. And um, you brought a you know you brought a good point out, and I hope that you know especially some of our younger uh, students and whatnot that are listening in, you know, realize that it takes work. Um, to be a good social worker, just like it takes work to be a good human being and to progress. If you stand still and you're, um, you, we can be st stuck in our ways. We can go down the wrong path. We can be, like you mentioned, we can be mentored by maybe some of those social workers that have been in the field too long and have, um, you know, that can transfer some of that negativity to us. Um, so it takes work. And so before we circle back, I wanted to ask you, you know, that can transfer some of that negativity to us. Um, so it takes work. And so before we circle back, I wanted to ask you, what work did you do, L.A.? You said that you were at, uh, you know, not that long ago, you know, you were suffering with what work did you do, L.A.? You said that you were at, uh, you know, not that long ago, you know, you were suffering with some issues with alcohol and you had that hole going on. So you kind of told us how you filled the hole in the long term. But what did you do to prepare yourself for that, you know, to make yourself what, what specifically did you do to make yourself whole? Well, one of the things that uh, I had to do was I had to um, finally admit that there was a lot of unresolved trauma that needed to be addressed. You know, when I left my house, uh, you know, I had to basically, you know, act like the rest of my family didn't exist uh, to save myself. And so getting right in.
And so I uh, started trying to create something that I didn't have. And so I hid for years behind my wife, behind the money that I made, behind the cars, behind the travel. And, you know, those wounds were, they were buried or they lied dormant. But when the challenges of uh, home life and being a husband and raising a child or maturity to withstand those trying times and uh, my relationships within and to instead of going to seek the help that was needed uh, alcohol and nightclubs and new girlfriends you know numbed out that the, the pain that I needed to face regardless of whether I you know I was probably incapable of uh, dealing with it at the time or I just didn't want to but I was always aware that one day it was going to have to be addressed so finally at 49 years old losing my see as long as I had that substitute that money coming in those nice houses those new girlfriends I was always able to put off the pain because there was always a new distraction that demanded a lot of my attention and it was enough until it wasn't enough and so this last uh when i lost my my third wife and two years later to lose my job i decided finally to turn into the pain and that was to face uh, what was going on and my professors and the things we've learned in the social work program and in my mental health classes helped a lot but then I also had to turn to other spiritual advisors people who had over who had overcome addictions and talk to them and really just face it to lean into it and one of the things that my professor said to me you know in order to get your master's degree at, at the University of Hawaii, one of my professors had us do a genogram. And we had to stand in front of the entire class and explain our family background and, and uh, why are we getting into this work. And then when it was over, he wrote me a long letter. And he, and he said that to me. He says, you know, I am not sure if you will ever completely heal from all of the trauma that you've seen. And this guy had been in, on the front line of mental health for 40 years since he was 19. He was the uh, director of the social work department there. And he said, I'm not sure if you will ever completely heal from everything that you've seen. He goes, but you've done the work and you no longer need to be a slave to it and you no longer need to be governed by it. You're gonna be able to help a lot of people. And in that moment, that freed me. That let me know that all of those wounds and traumas that I ran from for so many years and covered up with alcohol and covered up with wives, that at that time, my experience and reality had proven that none of those things that I did was going to make it go away. So it was like, okay, three wives, four different cities, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars, the pain is still there. So that's true. None of this is going to replace that. Then he goes, you might not ever completely heal from it, but it no longer needs to govern your life, which meant that I might always feel a reaction to certain situations and people, but I can feel it without having a, a neglectful or negative reaction or response to it. It's almost like I live in two worlds at one time. I could recognize that. Oh, that's an old wound from my childhood experience. based on the present moment of which I have a whole lot more lived experience, academic credentials, that I can make my decision based on what's really going on today and not from wounds from the past. And it was with that that he told me that I was going to be able to help a lot of people. And one thing that helps me in this field is as a result of that, working in this very difficult environment that we work in. One of the things that I know when I wake up in the morning and go to work that I am not God. I am not going to be able to change everybody. The world on my shoulder. So I stay in my lane. I know what I provide. I give them what I have. I place them in the hands of the universe. And that helps me, you know, keep that that line of delineation that we need to continue to be effective in the work that we're trying to pull off. Yeah, um, you know, healing ourselves, releasing the burdens, it lightens the world for us and, and allows us to feel joy like we were talking about earlier. Now, I want to circle back, but there's a couple of things I wanted to point out uh, real quick. Is one that those of you that are listening in, stick around and we'll have time for questions in a little bit. Uh, but also, before we circle back, I wanted to make sure, Lee, you had an opportunity if you had anything you wanted to say or ask any questions here. Yeah, you know, I can relate with your story on so many different levels. It's kind of shocking. And it makes me think that, you know, those in this field can probably relate more than we realize. But um, I just love that your story comes full circle. You know, you said that people played a key role in your life and your adolescence. And now you're working with adolescents and that's where you feel most happiness. And so... I think it really just demonstrates how, you know, things can come for full circle in our lives. Um, and two, just the comment on, you know, making yourself whole and finding that genuine happiness. Like it really doesn't come from material world of cars and girlfriends and on, you know, making yourself whole and finding that genuine happiness. Like it really doesn't come from material world of cars and girlfriends and nightclubs and, a lot of money, but you really got to find it within yourself, which is harder to do. Um, so yeah, I think nightclubs and a lot of money, but you really got to find it within yourself, which is harder to do. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that's important. Thank you so much, Lee. All right, LA. Well, I want to circle back and I want you, I'm going to leave this up to you to tell this story however you want, but I want you to take us back to Chicago back in the days when you were a kid still, maybe a young adult kid, wherever you want to start it off, and tell this story however you want. But one thing I would like you to, to add in, if you can, is you mentioned, add in if you can, is you mentioned later in life, you know, you had this inner voice that you listened to. And it's my belief that we all have this inner voice. And when I look to my own childhood, I can hear that voice. later in life, you know, you had this inner voice that you listened to. And it's my belief that we all have this inner voice. And when I look to my own childhood, I can hear that voice 
But slowly that voice faded or, you know, it was knocked down from peers and society and, and whatever. And so I was curious, was that when you look back, do you hear that inner voice? Was it there? And did you listen to it? And if not, why do you think it was whatever you want to say on the matter? But yeah, go ahead. I'd just like to hear you. I'd, uh, I'd like to open the floor for you to share. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, you know, I know you've heard about that um, that research they've done. It happened over in Kauai years ago. I forget which year it was, but they wanted to know what it was that separated people who were brought up in environments like uh, me. Uh, and, you know, dysfunctional homes where there is abuse and alcoholism and neglect. And they did a longitudinal study on those uh, individuals, and they went back and followed up with them when they're in their late 50s and 60s. And and they separated out those who were living relatively healthy lives, you know, married, good jobs, nice homes, and doing relatively well, as opposed to those like my brothers and sisters who what we would refer to as victims of the environment. Uh, they didn't... Uh, um, do so well, you know, they died young, they went to jail, um, died, you know, all types of illnesses. And what they found that separated those who were doing relatively well and contributing to society was there was one person in their life that they could count on or that they loved and that was there for them and um, that made them feel comfortable and loved, and, you know. And for me, that was my grandmother. And that was my uh, my teacher. What I learned over the years, though, when I think back to my brothers and sisters who grew up in the very same environment that I did, I grew up in a home with three brothers and one sister. Not one of them made it past 10th grade. My oldest brother, he was in jail by the time he was 18 for accessory to murder. One of his friends shot a man uh, while he was and just lived a terrible life. So I had to untangle a lot of that survivor's guilt. And what I've learned is when your primary caregivers have harmed you and have failed to provide your basic needs, it, comes really, it becomes really, really hard for young people, children, adolescents, and young adults to receive love from other people in their life that's trying to help them, whether it be social workers, teachers, or surrogates in the neighborhood. But for some reason and somehow I was still able to receive love for those people in my life. Uh, I've worked with a lot of kids who've gone through, who've come through similar experiences as I, and they can't receive the love and help from the teachers and the counselors in their life. They come to the conclusion that if my mom and my dad and my family have hurt and harmed me, then why should I trust you? If the people who are supposed to love and take care of me, if they've harmed me and hurt me, there's no way I'm going to ever trust anyone else to do that. And so that I came into the world with. Never underestimate genetics. Uh, genetics is a is a cruel mistress sometimes, and so you know the only thing I could uh, attribute it to is you know we all had different fathers, 
And so I don't know why I was able to receive the love that my grandmother and the surrogates in the neighborhood uh, gave me, and but my brothers and sisters didn't. But, you know, the last thing my grandmother said to me, I she was so important to me, and I had a vision when I was 12 years old that she wasn't going to always be around. So something happened to me internally that this lady who is loving me and taking care of me, she's not going to always be here. And by the time I was 27, she was gone. And the last thing she said to me was, son, don't be a fool your whole damn life. And uh, I've never forgotten that. You know, when I was 17 years old, I was doing what we children did in that area. I was part of a gang. I pulled the loaded 38 gun on this family down the street that we were having fights with. And my grandmother was politically connected. And while I was sitting in jail for this felonious assault charge, and we know what happens to young black kids from the ghetto that are engaged in activity like that, my whole life could have been ruined. If I would have got a felony, I never would have met you. Who knows what would have happened? But my grandmother went to this congressman who she had got elected. And, you know, she said, this is my grandson, and he's an idiot, and he did this silly act of why should we waste his whole life? over a silly adolescent mistake. Well, that record was expunged. I never stood in front of a judge. I never had to get an attorney. I never spent the day in, uh, outside of that eight-hour time in jail. So I was given a second chance in life. And that was when I was able to continue going to school. And that was when the senior social arts teacher directed me to the computer field. And so I was able to start working, making money in a very interesting field. And so these those thoughts never really left my, my mind, but I totally wasn't putting it to use. And so at 49, when I lost my job, I lost my wife, I was drinking way too much, I thought about these people. And so what it taught me, Christian, was that the, the integral people in our life they never really die, do they? Not if you look at it right. These people were in my bones. The things that they said and the things that they did was in my bones and within my soul. I just needed time to mature, to put their lessons to work. So I had to go through all of that crap in order to get to a place where I could truly understand the honor and the privilege and, and, and what they did for me. And so that's what drove me and motivated me once I went back to school. It was my, the voice of my grandmother and the voice of Beverly Ball and the opportunities. They saved my life. And I recognized it at that moment that if it wasn't for this, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. So I was compelled at that point to discover who it really was. And I remember saying my prayers at around six months without a drink or a drug in my body. And I said, the only thing I want to do with my life is I want to be passionate about what I do. The money made no difference to me. I had already had the money and the homes and the cars and the travel, and I was miserable. I wanted to be passionate about what I did, and I wanted to duplicate what my grandmother and Beverly Ball had did for me.
And so what drives me today when I'm sitting there talking to those kids or anyone that I help is that memory that I had at 49, wondering what am I going to do with my life, remembering what my grandmother said to me, remembering what Beverly Ball said to me, and commemorating them. So when I'm looking at these kids, I'm like, you know what, it'll probably be 10 or 15 or 20 years before they recognize the impact that I have on them. But maybe one day in their late 30s and 40s, somebody like you, Krishna, like you, Lee, will ask them, how did you make it? How did you escape that? How are you still here doing this? And it is my hope going to say, you know, I had this counselor. His name was L.A. And I remember him working with me. And the things he shared with me have always stuck with me and got in my bones. And if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here today. And I know that's true. And I know it'll happen because that's my story. And that's how I got to where I am right now because of what a couple of individuals did to me at key moments, at, at, at these turning points in my life. Whether if they hadn't directed me and shared with me what they did, and if I didn't take advantage of that second chance, I wouldn't be here. And I know for a fact that the population that I work with, these adolescents between 14 and 18, if it works for me, I know that it's going to transmute to them also. So I hope that answered your question, brother. Yeah, and you know, it makes me, the entire time, you know, I'm sitting here reflecting and I'm thinking, you know, got to be careful. I, I, I'm going to speak for myself personally. I've got to be careful with what I say to people, you know, and, and say it with meaning and, you know, emphasize that integrity and that authenticity. What's going on? Um, a negative value of the self. But, you know, just think about like the, t the many times as a social worker that you meet with somebody and you have an opportunity to say something to them or you have an opportunity to listen as well. But you have an opportunity to just say something. Make sure it's meaningful and make sure that you mean it and make sure because you never know how long that might circulate in somebody's consciousness in their minds and when it might come back to help them. Um, so I really appreciate your story, L.A. And it's also courageous to, you know, as you're talking about it, you're talking about working with these kids not, I mean, I'm not saying you don't help them in the present, but what I'm saying is that it's courageous to look at your duty as helping them for something you may never see. You might, they may look you up on Facebook or look you up and send you an email and tell you, but they may not, and they may not know how to find you. Hell, you may be gone by then. You know what I mean? And so it's courageous mm -hmm. to, to look at it that way. I really appreciate that you brought that up. Um, you have anything to add? Yep. Well, uh, you know, it, it's, so, it's so true. Let me... You know, don't be a fool your whole damn life. I've never forgotten that statement. And I can honestly say that today I know my grandmother is proud of me. It took 52 years before I could say that. At 52, I said, my grandmother would be proud of me today. She would be. And so what I would like to emphasize to the young social workers and anybody that's new to the field and just getting started on this, we're building bridges. 
and the people that you help, a lot of times they will walk out of your room, out of your presence, and you're going to feel like you're not helping them because of what it looks like and the reality. But the fruit will be will bear years down the road. And my life is a testament to that. My grandmother and that social arts teacher was gone years before the words that they said to me took root and produced. And so now I know that everything that I'm doing, all of the people that I help, you know, they get the credit for that, which tells me that they're still alive because they're in my bones. So pay it forward. Mm -hmm. You know, these yeah. stories are so inspirational and they're contagious. I'm already thinking of like ways I want to interact with people or to make sure that I am, you know, more meaningful and knowing that these stories and these interactions are going to be alive and well, maybe, maybe not, but years and years down the road and who knows uh, the impacts they can have. So again, super great story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, couldn't be better. I thought we'd open it up for some questions. We got a lot of people in the room. Um, anybody have a question that's been listening in? Anyone at all? We've got Alicia. Alicia, we've got to have you turn on your mic. Hi, Alicia. that the family Christian <laughs> good old technical difficulties the other day there's it's inevitable that things still come up right we can still get triggered by things um people's story can still trigger us how do you manage that in your work right now uh i want to make sure that i understand that question christian uh can you repeat that for me our sound was a little our sound was a little muted for me Christian, can you hear me? We can't hear you, Christian. Uh, who is that, Alicia? Yeah, Alicia. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't get the, my voice is cutting out. Did you hear it, Lee? Yeah, she was just asking about you know working on your. Yeah, can, can you have a repeat that question? Go ahead, Lee. Okay, she was asking in the work that you do. Um, you know, admitting that you can still get triggered at moments from your past. Uh, how you do that question? Go ahead, Lee. 
Okay. She was asking in the work that you do, um, you know, admitting that you can still get triggered at moments from your past, uh, how you deal and handle with that uh, in the workplace. Yeah, that's a good question. Again, uh, you know, I struggled with that for years. You know, whenever uh, one of my old wounds were triggered, you know, I always felt like, wow, I, uh, I got more of a fallacy. And for years, you know, when old wounds and hurts would come up, you know, I would kind of like internalize it, like I failed to address this. But if you remember uh, uh, what I shared about that professor, when he shared with me, you know, from his experience of 40 years of working in the, on the front lines of mental health, when he shared with me that some of these wounds are indelible, you know, the brain is shaped by our experience. And, he, and when he shared with me, I am not quite sure that you will ever completely heal from all of your experiences. That freed me. Now, to most people, that would make them feel like, wow, I'm doomed. But the exact opposite happened to me. It was like, oh, okay. There's nothing wrong with me. I have, you know, I'm doing, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. But what he, what he enforced and, and uh, helped me see was that I can live in two worlds at one time. That those pains from the past will come up. I need to recognize that they're not from the stimulus that I'm dealing with right now, although the stimulus that I'm dealing with right now may have triggered it or caused it to move. The movement of it is what causes my pain. Now, I don't have to respond to that pain. I can respond to the person that's sitting in front of me that has nothing to do with that pain. So he taught me how to live in two worlds at one time. And then here's the miracle that happened. The more that I could live with that without responding to it, the weaker it gets. And so each and every time that it's dinged or triggered, and I recognize that this is from the past and not from the person sitting in front of me, just like any muscle that's not used, it atrophies. It loses its power. And so each time a situation arises, that gives me an, an opportunity oh, to recognize that's there and eventually get to a place where I'm completely healed from it because I'm not responding to that. Yeah. Hopefully that sheds some light on it yeah. and understand. Yeah, thanks for Hello. Hello, Thip. Maybe more technical difficulties. You there, Thip? All right. Well. Um. No, I don't think I do, but I I took a lot away from this, so I uh, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, I think that um, you were a great person for us to have as our yes. first. Uh -huh. right. We have we have more callers again, so let's see here what we can do. 
back here and see if we can get him in. All right, we're going to try flip again. You there? We can't hear you. All right. Margaret, can you hear us? Well, you guys worked that out. Margaret? You there, Margaret? Hmm. All right. Well, the call the calls have not worked out as uh, as we have hoped. Here, let's try one more. Deb. Deb. Yeah. Let's try Deb. Just a second. You there, Deb? You got to take your mic off or turn your mic on. Margaret, are you there? Nothing. We're not hearing anything from anyone. So we're going to stop taking calls, and we'll try to resolve that next time. I'm not sure what's happening. So sorry about that, L.A. Um, if anybody has a question, you could ask it in the chat real quick. Uh, no worries. Um, but... Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap it up. I don't see anything coming, and we can't get the phones to work. So hopefully we'll um, resolve that next time. Uh, so I want to thank you, L.A., for sharing your experience and for our Yeah.
the natural human instinct is to run from it. And it may be because at that age, you don't have the emotional maturity or stamina to face it or deal with it. So naturally we repress it or we'll drink it away or we'll get in another relationship or we'll gamble. Anything to spill the But nature will not be denied. What I've learned is that the body is an amazing piece of equipment. It generally will heal itself if the wound is not so great. When the wound is really great, you have to go to a hospital or a doctor and they have to patch you up and give you some medicine. But emotional and psychological wounds are healed on the, on the nature level. And the way that happens is, is paradoxical. Emotional and psychological wounds and traumas, we instinctively want to run away from. And you can repress it and you can cover it up with a lot of things that appear to be successful. But they never go away. Nature wants to heal. And the way emotional wounds and things are healed is that they have to be revisited. And you don't have to consciously go looking for it. Your life, the people, places, and things in your life will present them for you. And we call those triggers. They'll come up. And the movement of those emotional wounds, it feels painful. And the natural instinct is to run. So here it is. The answer to your pain is in your pain. You need to get with somebody who is well qualified, who's versed, who's gone through it, and who knows how to walk you through it. And you have to go into that, you know. And so it's learning how to live in two worlds at one time and recognizing that, although this is so painful, you learn that, hey, you can live with it, you can get through it, and it, eventually it'll, it'll atrophy along with the, the proper help and guidance uh, in that area. That's been my experience. I, I, I had to eventually get around to that. I was willing to become conscious of what happened to me and deal with it. And uh, once I went through it, instead of running from it and around it or covering up with some drugs or alcohol, you know, today I can say that, I, that I've been healed and I've recovered from all of my childhood trauma. All right, thank you, LA. We have a couple more questions. Margaret says, just want to, uh, let's see. Just wanted to say, great job. Keep an open heart. Did you have any difficulty at looking at an age limit to keep studying? And if so, how did you look past that? Did she mean looking at the age limit of the, the population I was going to work with? I'm not sure. I think she's asking, uh, you know, going back to college at a later at a later age. And did you ever think about? You know, like you were, like it was too late to go to college. I think that's what she's asking. Oh, <laughs> well, when I decided to go back to college, yes, I was, um, I was 49, right? And so, like I said, I was at my daughter's graduation and she walked across the stage and she got her diploma. And I'm like, wow, yeah. I've always wanted to go back to college. I never did that. I never had a chance to. I didn't have to. Oh, that's what I'm going to do. And so immediately when I made up my mind that I was going to go back, I had this terrible brainstorm that uh, I went through. It was like, man, am I going to be smart enough? Am I supposed I'm not smart enough to do college? Well, and if I did, if I am smart enough to do college, 
what's going to happen if after I graduate, there's no work? And suppose I can't get hired. So all of this, this flood of fear and anxiety naturally overcame me being that late in life. But then, you know, my spiritual practice, I had learned, I said, hold on. I stopped myself and I said, am I willing to do a semester? And the, the anxiety and the fear went away because I said, I quickly concluded, yeah, I can do one semester. Five years of college, one semester at a time. I didn't look down to the graduation. I didn't look down to what jobs were going to be available. Every now and then thoughts came, but I immediately dismissed them and said, I need to just stay in this one semester and focus on this. And so that's how I got through. And now when I thought about the doctoral program, I wanted to get in that. That's going to be another five years. And then I said, well, heck, I'm gonna, I'll be I'll be 60 by the time I get that. <laughs> and what stopped me from moving forward is like, look, if you got to go for your doctoral program, you really want to be sure that you really want to work at the university. You want to be doing research. You want to do all of this. So it made it easy. But naturally so, that that's always going to be a concern for non-traditional students like me, like you. But I would say, you know, you Chop that down into chunks. Don't borrow sorrow. Don't try to predict what's going to happen next year, two years from now, five years from now. You don't know. But you can. As long as you're prepared, you know, and willing to not be so rigid in what direction you're uh, credentials are going to take you, I am confident you'll find a place to. And if you, if it's not your place, you'll know it in your heart. Don't be afraid to change. I just had uh, my students read in one of my classes, a uh, like an anecdotal article, but the guy was talking about his friend who was, uh, he had a terminal illness and he was dying. And they went for a hike to the top of this mountain. And his friend said, you know, I, I've been really stressed out lately. And feeling down and depressed and stuff. But I just had an epiphany and I feel great now. And the guy's like, well, what was your epiphany? He said, I realized that I have as much time in the present moment as you do. And I, and I always will. So it made him appreciate the, the present moment. And that's what I took away from that answer that you gave is that you never know how much time you have or, or what's going to happen and, and whatever. So do what's best for you in the present moment. I'm looking forward. All right, we have another question. L.A., I was wondering if you do any type of self-care that has been helpful to you, maybe to decompress after the difficult days. Oh, heck, yeah, I'd stay on Maui. <laughs> How many days of sunshine a year? I go to the beach. I go to the beach every day. You know, when I work, once I get off work, I work up on top of a hill. And when I leave my job, I'm coming down this hill and I'm looking forward and it's the Pacific Ocean. And so that also was a very conscious decision that I made to live here in the islands. Um, the, Maui itself, my home is a very therapeutic healing place for me. So with my personal experience and this work that uh, I do, 
I believe that this island uh, called me. Uh, I was a teenager, and the way I got here in Chicago, I was watching an old Elvis Presley movie. It was uh, Blue Hawaii, and I was like 14 years old, and Elvis Presley was on the beach in Waikiki playing his music, and the girls were dancing, and that's where the, the seed was planted in my heart to get here, and it took me 45 years to get here, and this is the only place I've ever felt at home. I, I was born and raised in Chicago for 40 years. I lived there. I moved to San Francisco. I lived there for five years. And I was always restless and out of joint and never felt at home anywhere. But once I got to the island, uh, this, this is in my heart. This is my home. It's in my bones. And this is the work that I do. And not once, I've been here 18 years, and not once have I ever thought about going anywhere else or moving anywhere else. And so this island and the water is healing. The work that I do is very, very uh, traumatizing. And uh, so my self-care regimen is, number one, the reality that I know that 40 I'm not God, and um, I take care of myself. I go to the beach. I take walks on the beach. The weather is 83 and sunny. The average temperature in Hawaii in the summertime is 83. The average temperature in Hawaii in the wintertime is 82. So there you go. <laughs> well, hard to complain about that. I have a follow-up question, L.A. Um, you know, being somebody who you, now you're calling, you know, you say that Maui is your home and that it's the first place that you ever knew that was your, that, you know, that was literally your home. Being there for, for, for a while now, how have you developed like a kinship with the people in the land of Hawaii that make, you know, that's built that relationship? I was wondering if you could paint that picture a little bit for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the, the Hawaiian population has gone through many of the, the social uh, atrocities and struggles that the African Americans and the Native Americans have. And so uh, the beautiful part about this, this place is it's filled with aloha. I believe when I moved here in 2005, the demographics were, uh, let me see, like 32 uh, percent Japanese, 16 uh, percent Filipino, 12 uh, percent Chinese, 8 percent white, um, 2 percent Native Hawaiians, and then the rest is of everybody else. So you know, it is, it is a melting pot of many different cultures and ethnicities. Uh, there's an unspoken rule or law here that either it's a, the islands, if the islands of Hawaii don't accept you, you're not going to stay here long, you know. And so I was accepted by the, the spirit of this place. I felt it in my heart, in my soul. I always felt home here. And then, you know, it's an unspoken law. You have to stay here 10 years straight in order to become, to be recognized and feel like you're a local. And so I've been here 18 years. Uh, I felt at home from day one. My integration 
uh, into this community has been a very uh, pleasant and prosperous one. And that's how I know where I'm at. And I am so proud. One of my hashtags, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I was a menace to society, and today I contribute to the health, safety, and well-being of the Maui community, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and I love it. And I know you get a taste of that, Christian. That's why you keep coming back. Yeah, well, I, uh, peace <laughs> of my soul will always be in Hawaii, and who knows what the what the future holds. But it's a, it's definitely um, helped transform my life. So I appreciate your answer. Um, we got. I've seven never been to Hawaii, so. Maybe it's going to be on my bucket list. Just my two cents. <laughs> you got to go. Um, we got a lot more questions coming in. So it's, let's see. Uh, I think, Shimmy, I think this might be Mark. But I'm not sure. L.A., thank you for your story. As And as a Chicago kid myself, I need to ask a humorous question. Do you miss the Chicago-style pizza? LOL. Absolutely. <laughs> There's no substitute, you know. You know, sometimes a man has to cross the ocean to find his true family. And um, uh, that's what happened to me. I had to cross the ocean to find my family. My home is here. My family is here. But, uh, yeah, I have not found a place that can duplicate <laughs> Chicago pizza. Uh, so there ain't no doubt about that. I have to go back to Chicago for that. Absolutely. All right. This next one is from Yuka. She says, she asks, how do you recognize the difference between your own personal problems and trauma and your organizational trauma when you're struggling at work? Practice. Um, again, um, You know, I work at a school that I think uh, Lahaina Luna is the uh, oldest school west of the Mississippi, 1831. Uh, so the Department of Education in Hawaii, they have a lot of gaps. There's a lot of uh, trauma uh, organizationally here and so just being conscious of it and understanding what you can and cannot do what i try to do i try to stay in my lane you know we you, you have administrators you have teachers you have the district you have all of these people when they got their responsibilities and they all focus on one thing my you know i have a sing i keep a singleness of purpose that's my advice to you, whatever agency you go into, a singleness of purpose. I look around, I see a hundred things wrong every day in the, in the school system. I see the gaps. I see teachers that shouldn't be teachers. I see all types of stuff that shouldn't be. But my singleness of purpose is providing a safe space uh, for the students and the staff that I work with. You know, and people quite often ask me, you know, this work that you do, I know it's, you see a lot of trauma. You're always smiling. You know, how do you always stay in such a good mood with all of this stuff going on? And, and like I said, well, one, I'm not God, and I know that I'm not going to um, 
fix all of the problems that face me. Here's something that, again, that I've learned from invaluable information that my, my uh, professor gave me before I left the University of Hawaii, Manoa. He said this to me. He said, L.A., you have to learn these theories, you know, because we would have all of this homework and stuff to do, and they made us write these papers, and I would be theorizing. And they would go, no, I want to know what you would do in a real-life experience. I don't want to hear what books say in the theory that you read in the book. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't have any experience. This is the only experience I have, what I'm reading in the book. And they're like, no, I want you to somehow put yourself in that place and give me a natural, a real life experience of how you would respond. And then he says, I'm getting ready to give you something and never forget it. He says, you have to learn these theories in order to pass the test. You have to pass the test in order to get the degree. You need the degree to get the job, but your true education is gonna take place in the field with your client sitting across from you. That's where your true education is going to take place. And so I've never forgotten that. So I don't go in there thinking that I have the answers to everything, that I know everything, that I'm going to fix everything. I'm in there, and that's where I'm getting my true education. I have learned far more from these students that I work with than they have learned from me. And I'm 100% sure that they live in another world. Uh, there's going to always be work to do. There's going to always be gaps to fill. There's going to always be something wrong. I work in a behemoth of an organization system that's been going on since 1831. I stay in my lane. I have to. If I want to be effective and provide that help that these students need, I can't afford to lose focus and try to carry too much of, of other things that's not my concern. I have a primary purpose, just one, and that's to create an environment that is healthy and healing for the students that I see. And all of the rest of that stuff, I recognize it, I see it, but I don't carry it home with me. Thanks, L.A. This, this next one's from Doreen Phillips. Doreen asks, L.A., you mentioned that biology played a role in your journey compared to your siblings. When you encounter clients that you feel are struggling to open up to that love, trust, and caring from people, what approaches do you take to help those young people try to open up? Well, sometimes I just cry with them. You know, I sit there and, you know, I'm supposed to be the professional and I'm supposed to have all the answers. And, you know, when they break down and share their tragedies and traumas, atrocities that they've gone through, sometimes I just cry. I give them a human response. And, I, and, I, and I'm honest with them. I let them know that there's nothing magic going to take place in this office just because you're coming to see me. I want you to know right up front that I'm not going to say anything that's going to uh, eliminate your pain and suffering that you're going through. You know, so um, 
Sometimes I have to identify with them, you know, and share a little bit of part of my struggle, my life when it and it's close to there. So, you know, I'm very careful about that. But sometimes they need to know uh, that I'm human too. They need to know that I may understand what they're going through. And sometimes I have to, you know, share some very personal information just to build that therapeutic alliance. Um, but quite often, for those students who struggle with receiving help and love because they've been harmed by the uh, their caregivers or the systems or peers, you know, sometimes I just have to let them know the reality of the world that they're living in. You know, and I point out to them that, you know, you may have seen and have experienced things that most children probably never should see. And it's unfortunate that you've had this experience. I'm thinking of a couple of my students that I've seen over the years. Horrendous, terrible experiences that no one should ever see. And these are adolescents and they've gone through it. So sometimes I have to point out to them, I got to get real, I got to get in the mud with them and let them know, you know, this is terrible. This is bad. You never should have experienced it. But then, but guess what? You think this is bad? Guess what? It can get worse. That way, what? You can get worse than what I'm going through? Yeah, you think this is bad. You know, I'm here to help you. And uh, you don't have to, you don't have to take this help. But you will take it because somebody's going to help you. It's going to be, it's going to go down easy or it's going to go down hard. It can always get worse. So, you know, it's an individual thing. You know, I never know what approach I'm going to take with the, with the, with the person that's sitting in front of me. You, you just never know. You never see it coming. And so, uh, that's what that professor meant. You know, you have to understand these theories to pass the test. You have to pass the test to get the degree. The degree gets you at the front line. Now get ready for your, 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 your true education. And just to add my two cents onto that answer is that I think that the best way to get others to open up their hearts is to open up our own first. And when we open up our own hearts, we help others do the same. We give them permission to do the same. Thanks for that answer. We got one more question, LA. Last one from Kim. Are there any books for social work students that you recommend that helped you? Yeah. Trauma. Let me see. Um, one of my favorite books that I took with me is called Trauma Stewardship. Um uh, an Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others. And I'll type the name of the author and the title in the in the chat for you. That's a good book. And it does, it does so, circulate through the program. Excellent book. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it. Are you familiar with it, uh, Yeah, Leigh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from, we got it when I was, a, I don't remember what class, but one of my courses when I was going through my BSW at UAF gave us, we were assigned that book. Um, I've since passed it on to Alicia, but it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to wrap it up. We're coming on right on where we looked to do this for about two hours. And so we're right on point uh, with our first episode. 
So again, LA, I want to deeply from, um, you know, from the depths of my heart, I want to thank you for coming on the show, for opening your own heart up, for helping me open up mine and for helping up everybody that has been listening for, to help them open theirs up. Um, it's just been a pleasure to have you on and, uh, you know, how you already know how I feel about you. And I gave you a, an introduction from the heart. So I love you, brother. And, um, thank you again for coming on. And I hope that maybe we can get you on here again, um, at some point, cause I know you got more stories than, than just the one. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, man, what an honor. I am I am so honored uh, to be able to to share my experience and Lee. So nice to meet you guys. This is awesome. You guys are doing great work. Keep it up, brother. Keep it up. And I and I uh, look forward to seeing you real real soon. Yeah, yeah, we will see you soon. Thank you. If you don't, LA is coming out here to visit us in Alaska in uh, May. So uh, if you see him around, make sure you give him a, a nice welcome. Um, all right. Well, this is our first episode and while it's not up yet, it will be soon enough. You should be able to find our, all of these episodes via Apple and Spotify, and we'll do our best we can to share those links and, and how to access those moving forward. I want to thank everybody that listened in, um, especially those of you with questions. I really appreciate it. Um, we'll be broadcasting here live every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Alaska time. Next Saturday, we'll have spiritual and breath practitioner MT. He's also one of my connections from Hawaii. He's on the island of Oahu. And so if you're interested in any kind of uh, spiritual development, developing ritual practice, uh, developing a movement practice, any of those things and beyond, uh, please come around next, uh, next Saturday at 10 a.m. And if you have a story that you want to tell and you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, then please Hit me up. Send me an email at uh, castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. And well, all right, folks, that is it for this episode. All right. The Critical Social Worker is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. This episode was hosted by Christian Stetler and Lee Smith. <laughs> listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story. <laughs>